Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Second Chronicles chapter 11. Listen, there's a lot of context to this story, and if you know me, I'm a context guy. I, I think it's so important that we understand... Um, that we understand what's happening because what God's doing is, is specific to the context. And, uh, and I think it's important to know where man is at because while God is sovereign, while he is omnipotent, while he is omnipresent, while he can do anything everywhere and anywhere all at once that he wants to do, he has chosen to interact with man. He's chosen to engage with us. And so much of what he does, I'll say nearly all of what he does on the earth is is sort of contingent on what our hearts are are postured like. And so uh, be encouraged by that because... I think there's a, some teaching, there's some agnosticism in this region, there's some, this idea that like uh, God's like this clockmaker, and he kind of sets the clock in motion and then just sort of walks away, and that was creation, and that was humanity, um, and we're just left to tick. But in reality, we, we are the sons and daughters of an all-loving and almighty Father. And so while we're getting into this, I just want to let you know the context, I'm not going to get into a ton of detail here, but this is following the reign of Solomon, okay? Following the reign of Solomon, the kingdom is divided. And if you, if you know and understand this story, then you know, yes, somebody left me some cough drops up here. Praise him. Just going to, a little dry from this weekend, you know, so climate change. I mean, it's different climate in Pennsylvania than it is here. Not like global warming, climate change. <laughs> that might be happening too because the prayers of the righteous availeth much. You know what I'm saying? So here's the deal. The kingdom is divided. Solomon desires to leave the kingdom as a whole. And this is on the heels of, of Israel in its golden age, its golden era. It was at its height, its most powerful and he has this son, Rehoboam, that he wants to leave it to. But um, by uh, a series of events and mis- misfortunes and just bad decisions, the kingdom is divided. And I'm not, I don't want to, if I was preaching a different message this morning, we would get in more to that. But just know this, that there is now Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and Jeroboam, another man um, who it was previously prophesied over that he would take 10 out of 12 tribes and that he would be king over them. Now, that prophetic word was only given to him, okay? It was not spread over the kingdom at this point. But Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes the throne. And and I'm going to be reading this morning out of the uh, New King James Version. And it says this, Now, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel that he might restore the kingdom to himself, Rehoboam, okay? So here's a man who is coming in after his father. He sees a kingdom that is divided now, um, and his heart is to restore the kingdom. 
But watch this. In verse 2, it says, But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, because Judah and Benjamin were the two out of 12 tribes that had remained loyal to Rehoboam. And, uh, and, and this is the word in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your brethren. Okay. So, and he actually says this. He says, let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. What thing? This division thing is from me. This brokenness thing is from me. This divided kingdom, this 10 out of 12, aren't going the way that you think they should. Anybody been there where 10 out of 12 parts? Just thank you. Yeah, see that hand. Therefore, they obeyed. That's the key word. They obeyed. Everybody say obeyed. Therefore, they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. All right. So quick character assessment on Rehoboam. He was a complicated person. And I love scripture because there's hardly anybody in scripture that we don't see weakness in. There's really like, there's really like a, a, a well-rounded view. And a lot of historians, they say, well, scripture's written, you know, with a, a very skewed perspective of Israel and blah, 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 blah. Um, here's the deal. The Lord doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't wink at sin. And so what happens is, as the story of Rehoboam plays out, he has some pretty epic fails, and he has some pretty big wins, okay? Why? Because he was a real person, okay? He was a real person. And like David, and like Solomon, and like Abraham, and like, like everybody coming all the way up, and, and I love that even, even in the story of Jesus, we're not hidden from the fact that while he's in the wilderness, he's hungry, we're not hidden from the fact that when he's in the garden right before his execution, he's asking if there's some other way. We're not, those things aren't, aren't, we're not insulated from that. Because it's imperative that we understand that God uses humanity. Your humanity. God uses your weakness. And God used Rehoboam. Every time he turned back to the Lord, he got realigned. And so I want you to know this morning that you're not too far gone. All right? If you take anything home today, know that you're not too far gone. God will use you. And it's as, it's as quick as Rehoboam being really off. Okay? He's already been off a handful of times in his story. Like I said, we're not going to get into all the context. But it says he obeyed. He obeyed. And I believe that the goodness of our Father is knocking on the door of your heart this morning with an ask, with an order, with a mandate. And the question is, will we obey? Whatever that thing is, will you listen? Will you trust him? Will you obey? Will you back down from something that you're pretty convinced is right? Which leads us to our first point. His heart, Rehoboam's heart, was to restore the kingdom to its leader. But God's heart is to restore the kingdom to its maker. And there's a big difference here. 
Now, for Rehoboam, coming from Solomon, coming from David, okay, they did not have this laundry list of bad kings, okay? Now, several generations later, it's like they just stack one bad king, one wicked, you know, idol-worshiping king after another, after another, after another. But, but Rehoboam didn't have that history, okay? He had Solomon, who messed up but came around. He had David, who messed up but who God honored and made a covenant with. Uh, and then they had Saul, which was kind of like, a, okay, we got off to a rough start, you know? But, but things are good now. And so Rehoboam is the grandson of King David. And all he can think is, wait a minute, I've heard the stories of how, of how God gave military victory after military victory, campaign effort after campaign effort to, to my grandfather. And then I've watched as my own father Solomon brought the kingdom into economic-like wonder. And, and splendor and how this temple became, and we keep saying this, but it was one of the seven wonders of the world and, and how everything he did turned to gold. So if I'm inheriting the throne as that grandson and son, I'm thinking, all right, I've, I've got to hold this stuff together. I've got to keep this thing together. His heart was to restore the kingdom to its leader, but God's heart was to restore the kingdom to its maker. And I believe sometimes in our walk, in our life, flash forward several thousand years, our, our issue can be that we look to a trajectory, we look to um, a goal, we look to a paradigm or a principle, we look to something that has led us that, that has sort of stood as some sort of in-between us and God. And when it comes to realigning, the effort is realign yourself with that thing, with that man, with that person. But when God restores a kingdom, he doesn't restore it back to its leader. He restores it to himself. And what that means is that sometimes things, while looking radically broken in our eyes, while looking radically fragmented and discombobulated and disembodied and, and, and just sometimes downright shattered. This is the hand of God, and he says it in this word, for I am in this thing. This thing is of me. But God, it doesn't look like where it was going. Well, that's because what you saw where it was going was only here, but where I see where it's going is way down here, and it's okay. Trust me. If you're writing things down, write this down. The number one stumbling block for spirit-filled Christians, and by the way, that is statistically and scientifically proven by no one but me. <laughs> the number one stumbling block for spirit-filled Christians is our eagerness to fight battles for God that he's not fighting with us. The number one stumbling block for spirit-filled Christians is our eagerness to fight battles for God that he's not fighting with us. You see, the ten tribes, they had to walk a different road. And they walk that road all the way into captivity, all the way into exile, their own exile, all the way into slavery. 
Those 10 tribes had to walk. It was different than Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin had their own path and they fail and they end up in bondage and they end up in exile too, but it was different. There were, there were nuances. There were important things that God was doing differently. Rehoboam just needed to allow God to move them in those two different directions. And so I want to just stop for one second and talk about the difference between striving and submitting. Because you hear a lot about surrender. You hear a lot about submitting here. Not submitting to leadership, but submitting to God. Um, surrender is one of our values. I love Shane Lima up here. Last Was that last week? He was so, how good was that? That guy was on fire. I love him up here talking about our values because I think sometimes like it can be easy when we're just in it all the time. We took the heart study, you know, a while back and uh, then we kind of like let those things go. They become nothing more than a thing on the wall. Um, But what's interesting is to the outside, they're watching how our values are reflected off our hearts, are reflected off our culture. So striving versus submitting. You see... A lot of times in Scripture, there are places in Scripture, usually we talk about striving like it's always bad. But there are times when we can strive for good things. The problem is we can only strive for the best thing we can imagine. So if you, if you could just dream a dream, <laughs> if, if you could just imagine the most like incredibly perfect utopian picture of heaven on earth... You can strive for that, and and you can actually achieve that, but it will still fall short of what God wants because it was your imagination. When it comes to submission, we can submit to the best thing God can imagine. We can submit, we can surrender, we we can lay our lives down for something better than we could ever come up with in and of ourselves. And I think a lot of us, you know, we hear that and our, and our first thing is, well, Zach, the thing is, what's in my imagination? Well, God gave me that, right? That's what Americans say. God showed me that. So that's the American dream and that's the God-given dream. So whatever it is that I see the kingdom doing, whatever it is that I see, you know, uh, however it is that I see heaven unfolding here, that's what I'm imposing and projecting on the church or on the people of God or on my family or on whatever else. And I want to just, I want to caution us for one second there because it may be true that God showed you something But the fact that he showed you that means that he's also risking your own flesh being grafted into it. And and when he puts something on your heart or when he puts something on your mind, it is immediately subjected to the fallenness of your nature. Well, I have a new nature. That's good. But for as long as there's still flesh on your bones, there's still flesh on that vision. There's still flesh on that dream. Your thumbprints are still involved. And guess what? God will use it in spite of that. But be careful because we may end up engaging in battles. We may end up like Rehoboam going after the missing 10 pieces 
and willing to shed blood and and bring about civil war in the body of Christ to obtain a, a result that is only held up to our imagination, our flesh-tainted renderings of whatever perfect thing God really wanted to do if we would just submit to it. Amen? Amen. Okay, did everybody write that down? That's good, okay. I just want you to know, and like the more leadership that you take on, the harder this is, okay? And, and let's be honest, like, this is a, this is a, it's, it's weird. We're like a leadership focused church in the sense of ministry and anointing and calling. And like you hear me speaking to you all sometimes as like, but Zach, I'm not a full-time pastor. I'm not a full-time missionary. I'm not a full-time evangelist, whatever. Why do you, why is every one of your messages turned this way? I remember all the way back at South Attleboro, I was sitting at my desk writing a message on, on a, a cardboard Pepsi carton because I lost my notebook. And as I was writing it, I'm asking the Lord, why, why is it at like 24 or five years old, why is it that, that every message I write sounds like it's coming out to people who are already in ministry? Because at that time, I had a rubric for ministry and didn't realize that God wanted to break all of those identifiers and draw up, raise up a priesthood of believers that walked every one of us as if we're in full-time ministry, because we are. Love that. So we're this sort of ministry-focused, priesthood of believers-focused, and there is a leadership um, mandate that comes along with that. Now, I'm not like a leadership guru. I'm not up here giving you, you know, 21 irrefutable laws or seven pillars or 19 principles or 16 and a half paradigms or whatever it is. That stuff makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. But what I am going to tell you is that as we pursue the calling, the high calling of God that is on us, we will risk in increasing capacity. We will risk the amount of our flesh that, that is superimposed on the thing God's showing us and giving us. Right. And, and the reason why that matters is because as leadership increases, so too does your influence on others. And what ends up happening is you, you begin to influence people more based in your flesh than you do in the spirit. Striving rather than submitting. But God showed me this thing and I'm finally in an apostolic covering. God showed me this thing and 25 years ago and I'm finally in, a, in an environment where it can come to life and I will say yes and amen to both of those statements. But where I'll say, whoa, whoa. Where I'll say, whoa, is, and, and to myself, to our leaders is, how much of me is still on this? How much, how much of me is invested in this? Not like, a, oh, well, we should take ownership, but how much of my pride is hanging in the balance if this doesn't work out the way I think it should? There's a million ways to get it wrong. But thank God, there's still a way to get it right. Okay, so let's keep going. So God says, and I love this line, underline it in your Bibles, highlight it, tattoo it on your chest. The Lord says, go home. Go 
home. Are you kidding? Let every man return to his house. But we're all like, we've been doing our like war chants and stuff. And we've got like our intimidation dance down that we do like on the field right before the game. We're like, we're ready to go. We've got our like Samoan war cry and like, you know, all our shields are polished and our swords are sharpened. Swords are sharpened. And everything's ready. And the bugler's all got his lips warmed up. And the drummer's all like, you know, just drank a Mountain Dew. Like, we're ready to go. And God says, okay, go home. Why? Because maybe that's where the real battle is. Maybe home is where the real battle is. Maybe if, if some of us who are real deep invested in church politics, which I thank God that we really, by the grace of God, have kept that at a minimum here. We, part of why we don't have membership here is because we don't want to vote. We just want to pray. Okay? And, and I love that. I love that about our elders. I love that about our leadership. I love that, you know, to this day... The, all that we know is what God has shown us. And, and there's a, a mutual sort of like submission around the table that says, okay, the Lord's showing you that. He's not showing me that. He's showing me this. And then somebody else says, well, maybe it's because those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe there's a, a better, bigger, more kingdom way that those things actually work together. And, um, and, and so I love, though, I love this image of how the call to go home, it can kind of make us feel a little dumb when we're all decked out in our politics, when, when we've been, when our striving, okay, because that's where Rehoboam was going. He was going to strive. Two tribes against 10, by the way, and in that 10 were some of the best warriors Israel had. And Rehoboam was ready to take them all on. Why? Because he knew who his grandfather was and he knew who his God was and he knew that God could give military victory like that over and over and over again. And so he was taking a trophy from the past and he was using it as leverage to go in and make an epic mistake. And God says, go home. For many believers, if we, if we spent half as much effort as we do fighting politically religious battles, if we spent half as much effort fighting battles in our homes, we would look radically different. We would look radically different. Our homes have gone neglected our, our, our kids, our spouses, our marriages. It's absolutely nuts. It's absolutely nuts to think that we're going to come in. And usually what happens is the oppression or the woundedness or uh, whatever we're dealing with in our homes, that usually, most often, Satan designed it this way. I shouldn't say that. Satan didn't design it this way. God designed it this way, but it was meant to work in the good way. 
that whatever blessing, whatever favor, whatever honor, whatever fruitfulness, whatever overflow is happening in our homes, then it boils over into our ministries. But the enemy corrupted it to be that whatever's missing in our homes becomes a deficiency in our ministry. And we end up trying to overcompensate for something here that there's a dearth of over there. And all we end up with is this super out of whack, out of balance, super um, discombobulated ministry on this end. An area that maybe we really are anointed and called to walk in and to lead in, but we can't lead in because all we can do is operate in response to the woundedness or the lack over here. Now we spent like a year really focused on inner healing. And many of you, many in this, in this fellowship, you have gone through yielding, you have gone through deliverance, you've gone through the soul study, um, you've spent hours at this altar. Uh, and I'll just, I, because I love being a little bit closer to the South, brought me back to a lot of Southern phrases. And there was a Southern phrase that everybody said, I don't know if anybody said it up here, but it was this, get right with God. Remember when people used to say that, John? People said that in Brownsville. Get right with God. You had to say it like that. And if some spittle didn't come out of your mouth, and you, then you weren't saying it right. Get right with God. You had to put that Hebrew sound on the G too. But the deal is this. I believe in a lot of ways, people, people took great care to get right with God. Get their soul right with God. Get their spirit right with God. Get the the ancient wounds of their soul healed with God. They went back and walked through crisis and trauma with God. They went back and found Jesus in hopeless places and got right with God. And and for people who are still wondering about yielding and like, oh, this sounds a little weird, talk to somebody who's done it. Because, I mean... 99 out of 100 people come out of there and they're like, yes, please, sir, may I have another? Um, I say that to say that that's round one. Round two needs to be that when, when our inner man, when our spirit man gets healing, our family needs to then be the recipients of that healing. Our marriages then need to be the recipients of that healing. And instead of going out on some uh, Blues Brothers missions from God and thinking that we're going to go uh, finally fix all the 10 broken tribes and all this other stuff, we, we have stuff at home. Forget the 10 tribes. Forget your own tribe. Go back home. Some of us, we have adult children that are, that are not walking with the Lord. And as much as we like to say, well, they're an adult now, so it's in God's hands. There, there may still be things that the Lord is requiring of you in the lives of those adult children for the sake of the next generation that's coming up. And guys, don't be so prideful. Don't be so religious. Don't be so bold as to think, well, you know, I'm going to cut that off and, you know, God's going to restore it back to me whenever. Listen, we love the prodigal son story when we get to be the father on the porch. Okay, just well, I'm just going to wait here until they get right with God. No. You're the brother in the window. You're the brother in the window. And as much as we want to wash our hands of it and say, well, it's in God's hands now. 
Everything in God's hands, his favorite thing to do with it is to entrust it into yours. And so, I, and I'm not saying go shove a Bible down somebody's throat. Don't misunderstand me. And you know me, hopefully you've been here long enough to know my heart that that's not it at all. My heart though is to go home, to go home, to have a hard conversation with my wife and say, hey, what's missing here? Do you see something that I don't see? How are we raising our kids? We do this with our friends. We'll sit down with the pivas over some neutralizing element like ice cream bar and ice cream or something just to take a little bit of the steam out of the air. Hey, how are we doing with our kids? Hey, how, how, are, how, how, how am I doing with my marriage? What are we missing? Do you see something in us? Call it out. Go home. Take inventory. And don't fall for that lie that the only thing that we can do in, in church is to make up for what's missing in our homes. Because that is not how it was intended to be. When we take our home for granted, the enemy will take it for a ride. You can write that down. When we take our home for granted, the enemy will take it for a ride. So, so Rehoboam, in verse 5, dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. He built Bethlehem, Edom, Tekoa, Beth, Zur, Sokot, Adullam, Gath, Merishah, Ziph, Adarim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Arjalon, and Hebron, which are in Judah and Benjamin, fortified cities. And he fortified the strongholds and put captains in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. Also, in verse 12, in every city he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. See, this is what happens when you go home. This is what happens when the Lord calls you away from offense to defense. You see, if he had stayed on the offensive, he never would have been able to to achieve what took place in these cities. But he went home and he built up his defense. In our last few minutes, I want to talk about what it looks like to fortify strongholds. Because a lot of us, we say, well, isn't a stronghold already strong? Yes. But strength is still vulnerable when it's passive. No matter how strong you are, when you go to sleep, you're vulnerable. Look at Samson. Strongest man ever. And the issue is, these strongholds may have existed, but it was a normal tactic of the enemy to distract a, a, a king and his army so that they would leave the walls, to leave that city vulnerable. And saints, many of our homes, many of our families have been vulnerable, not just to all the normal ones. I know we like to put up the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing and paint all of the generation into one of these sins because it's an easy target and say, oh, you know, she's doing this now, he's doing that now. Listen, it's deeper than that. It's spiritual attack. 
And there's spiritual stuff that has found a way to coexist in homes that are inhabited by spirit-filled people, holy spirit-filled people. But there, there are spiritual issues. There are there, darkness at play. <clears throat> and saints, I want to encourage you that going back is for the sake of building your defenses, fortifying your strongholds. So he built defenses. And I want to point these three things out because I think they're incredibly important. The very first thing he does is station captains. He stationed captains, it says, in every city. Now, this is interesting because as a leader, sometimes, you know, we become really uh, impressed by our own leadership. And we can be really slow to delegate or to entrust or to think that anybody else could do something better than I could. Nobody else can see this vision as well as I can. Nobody else is hearing as clearly from God as I am. No one else is is really seeing what God's showing me. Again, true, but he might be showing somebody else something as equally important. And I love this picture of Rehoboam. And he's getting people he trusts. In fact, he chooses one of his sons who he's sort of grooming to be king. And and he entrusts him with great leadership. He takes other men that he trusts and stations them as captains in cities. And saints, I want to talk about this for just a second because in a lot of ways... Part of the reason why the church and pastors and ministers and everybody else have have come through uh, like a wave and been writing all of these books after books after books, and and you can earn degrees in leadership now and all this other stuff. Part of the reason is because our culture has become so anti-leadership. I was just talking to a young guy the other day, and he said, you know, it used to be that um, leadership was respected by right of its position. Like if, if a police officer has a badge and tells a group of rowdy kids to settle down, they honored or they respected that badge. In fact, if an adult just told them to settle down, there was honor and respect for the sake that this, this individual is an, an elder, an older person, an adult, and I need as a younger person to submit and to respect to it. And, um, and, and over time, because so much authority and so much leadership has been abused and misused and manipulated and corrupted, what now has sort of taken place is a, is a, a, a new thing that is relational-based respect, where I don't care if that person has a badge unless I know them and I know they're a good cop, <laughs> or unless, I, unless that adult is my parent, I'm not going to listen. And the crazy thing is, is even that now has given way to this idea that I don't really care how good of a relationship we have. That relationship is boiled down to, at best, you're my equal. But really, I have supreme agency over my life. I am the supreme authority over my life. I don't have to submit to anyone I don't want to submit to. I don't have to sacrifice anything that I don't want to sacrifice. I don't have to do anything. And what it is, is it's become this bizarre sort of twist on free will where we, we assume the superior role 
of ourselves. And we think that leadership is really just something to help serve the supremacy of my life. Leadership, I will only go and listen to a leader to be motivated so that I will think even more highly of the high thing that I already am. It's a big problem. But Rehoboam, being sent home, sets in place leadership over all that he was responsible for. And saints, I want, I want to challenge us in just a real practical way here, what leadership is present in our lives? What leadership is present in the lives of our children? What leadership is present? And, and when I say leadership, I don't just mean like, oh, your kid's baseball coach, although that may be one you should look at. I don't just mean, oh, you know, who's, a, who's their favorite high school teacher? I mean, anything that's leading How often are we going through and looking at the list of who our kids are following on social media? How often are we looking at going through our wife's list of who she's following on social media? <laughs> Guys, I, I'm, I'm, don't, don't misunderstand me. I got an email a while back about how I was a male chauvinist or something like that. And, and I'm just not. Like, I believe in empowering women. Um, I believe in women in leadership. Somebody asked me, do you, believe in, do you believe that women make good leaders? I believe good leaders make good leaders. And anybody that God has made a good leader is gonna make a good leader, you know? But I, I wanna just say this to the priests of the home, because that's what scripture calls husbands and fathers. Men of God, you will stand before the father and be held accountable for your wife and your kids. And I hope that scares the living crap out of you. I hope that that is the most sobering thing that you walk with day in and day out. Have you stationed good leadership? Have you stationed, like we got, um, and he just turned 13 and just this last Christmas, we got him a phone and it was not an iPhone. It was a phone that is like super uber tyrannically controlled by his parents. You can't just like get apps on it or like you can't do anything. I mean, it's like it may as well have like the circular thing on it. It may as well have that. That's about what you can do with this phone. And um, and so, you know, he was a little bummed and we were bummed for him because we like, you know, he's really responsible and really independent. But we get the the incredible burdensome privilege of making sure that he is led well. And saints, we're all responsible to station leadership in our lives, in our homes, in our families. We need to be aware, we need to take inventory. Some of us, we need to go back and pay attention. Just pay attention. Just pay attention to what is leading our families. Get interested. If you're not interested, get interested. 
for the sake of not just the gospel, but for the sake of the legacy of the kingdom in your home. Get interested. The next thing it says, he builds up stores of food, um, food, uh, wine, and oil. And uh, I can, I'm, I'm sort of like a instinctual prepper, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist and I, and I, you know, really like, I love that, that survival mindset, but, and I'm not going to tell everybody in here, you know, go build a bomb shelter in your backyard. Okay. But what I am going to say is I believe the Lord desires the church. Okay. I believe the Lord desires his bride to not have to move and sway with every wind of bad news that's blown across the land. There, there should be something in us that knows it ought not be reliant or dependent upon this failing, imploding, spiraling world around us. And so whatever that means for you, and I know that there are people in this church and in this community who, are, who, who do feel, hey, you know what? I need to be able to feed my family for three months, six months, a year, should the, I, should, I say, should the economy tank, but I mean, I think that ship left. Uh, I, I, I believe that there are people who have a burden to store up medical supplies, to, you know, to be able to provide in different ways and in different regards um, for not just their family, but for their neighborhood or for their church family. The point is, don't be susceptible to the nonsense of this world, okay? Because it gets us in a frenzy. And when the prophet calls on Israel now in captivity and says, don't call everything conspiracy that these people call conspiracy, what he's saying is don't be affected, whether it's a conspiracy or not. Chances are it is, right? Any hardcore right-wingers in here? Some of y'all come in. You have, to, you have to leave your foil helmet in the car just, to, just so people don't look. The point, the point is, why aren't we wise enough to not be susceptible in the way the world is susceptible? Why do we have to be thrown into absolute panic and chaos and, and, and craziness just because this world goes that direction? I don't think that's what he wants for his people. And finally... He built armories. In every city, he put shields and spears and made them very strong. In every city, he put shields and spears. Defense, saints, is active, not passive. That's why the military trains, regardless of whether they're at war. That's why there there are stockpiles of weapons in like everybody's house here. <laughs> Somebody just said hallelujah to that. I, I love that. I feel safe. Um, but I just, uh, I just, I, be, I believe that, and I'll say it again, strength can still be vulnerable when it's passive. It's like when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are issued a weapon. When you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, you are issued the ability to pray beyond yourself. 
You are given, uh, you are given maybe one of the strongest fighting forces in the world. It's up to you whether you keep that thing loaded. It's up to you whether or not you're willing to defend the, 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 whatever the kingdom's doing in your life with it. And finally, would you stand with me? So he made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. In verse 13 and 14, I'm going to close here. It says, and from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him. Watch this. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed for himself priests for the high places. So Jeroboam gets pagan priests for demons and calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left from all those places, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. Basically what happens is, and if you remember going all the way back to um, Exodus uh, somewhere, uh, the Levites were given lands. They were given cities. They were given areas uh, to, to um, farm and things like that. But they weren't given territory in the same way that all the other tribes were given territory because um, Scripture says that their inheritance was the Lord, which I think is pretty cool for priests to say our inheritance is the Lord. And, uh, but they were given places so that they still had areas to live and to grow and to feed themselves and that sort of thing. But it says that when this happened, as Rehoboam makes his stand, instead of um, initiating civil war and going to fight Jeroboam and, and all these other tribes, it says he goes home, he fortifies his defenses, he builds up and begins to stockpile that which would make his people less vulnerable to whatever it was that God was going to do in the world around them. And as the rest of Israel, as the rest of God's people watch the Levites get up, pack up all they had, and leave their homes, leave the common lands and their possessions as they watched them leave, it says anybody who was faithful to God followed them. It says anyone of all the tribes of, after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, they came to Jerusalem following them. And saints, I want to encourage the priesthood in this room. When we're obedient the way that Rehoboam was obedient, when we dial back from the battles that we were fighting for God, but somehow without him, when we take a few steps backward from those places and we go back home and we're faithful with what we do have immediate influence and authority over, what takes place it's incredible. People watch. People see. And people take note. People see the peace in your life. 
not just your highlight reel on Instagram, people recognize the fruit of God that's happening when we're faithful to the relationship with God that we've been called to. And all of a sudden, people start following. They start leaving their possessions. They start leaving their lands. They start leaving the, that, that place. And again, for the priests in this room who have been rejected by things out and beyond here, some of us beating our head against the wall, trying to, trying to make things work in some other area, in some other field, on some other stage, in some other arena. There's a place for you. And coming back in to Judah, coming back into Jerusalem, they were able to make those sacrifices again. It had gotten hard for them. They were persecuted. They were, they were denied their positions and authority and all that kind of stuff. But they came back to Judah. And suddenly the priesthood and the work turns to praise and worship. The priesthood that had become professionalized, the priesthood that had become, uh, you know, well, I've got to show up in Jerusalem a couple times a year, but I'm out here. I'm trying to make things happen over here. And, you know, this wealthy family hired me to be, you know, a priest of their home. And so now I'm going to go over here and do that. And, and, and we're trying to make everything work. But they come back and the priesthood and the work turns back to what it was always meant to be. Praise and worship. If you ever wondered why we spend so much time in praise and worship, it's because that's what we came back for. That's why we came back to this relationship. That's why we came back to this intimacy. Priests in this room this morning, priesthood of believers, as you migrate away from worldly expectations, as you turn your back on possessions, and land, I want you to know there is a world waiting to follow you. There is a world waiting to see you make a sacrifice that is free from all the religious nonsense and the worldly expectations and us trying to compromise this and integrate that and make sure that, that nothing we're doing is too offensive. You see, in the right place, that didn't matter. Come back to Judah come back to that place of intimacy, that place of relationship. Father, we thank you this morning that you welcome us home as a priesthood. Lord, that when it feels like the church has gone so far in, in some direction to meet the world where it is, when the, when the, the church and, and religion and faith as we know it has been so compromised and corrupted, I thank you, Lord, that there is still a place in you there is still a place uh, that, that, that turns our attention back to you, back to what you're doing in us, and back to the responsibility that we have in our homes and in our families. And so, God, I pray this morning that we would rise to the attention, not just of out, out trying to protest and picket our way to see change happen in the world, but to see change follow our decision to give up whatever we need to give up to come back to you. We come back this morning in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. 
This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.